0: Are you familiar with the different ways to pay less in taxes? Most people either don't know them or according to this week's guest, they're not using them properly. Eric Brotman is Chief Executive Officer of BFG Financial Advisors, an independent firm assisting clients with wealth creation, preservation, and distribution. Eric is going to talk Joe through the four different ways to decrease your tax bill long term. See what options work best for you and your family's future. Eric talks about why is it important to graduate into retirement, and see what he means by this, and how you can do it too. Let's just get right down to business. The Joe show. This, this is the Joe Roberts Show.
1: The Joe Roberts Show. The Joe Roberts Show. Hello, Eric. Welcome to the show. Let's get rolling by giving us a brief background about yourself.
2: Uh, sure, Joe. It's great to be here. Um, I, I am a financial advisor and wealth manager. I started a, in the practice in 1994, uh, started a company in 2003, and we've grown it to now we're managing north a half a billion dollars for clients in 32 states around the U.S. and outside of the U.S. Uh, and so that's my professional background. Personally, I'm a married guy with a middle school daughter, which is the scariest thing that I've ever done in my life. <laughs> and, uh, and so that, that's me in a nutshell.
1: So do you, do you give the, uh, the daughter free reign or do you, you know, how do you kind of manage that as a parent? Today, everyone has a different parenting technique and some say kind of give them free reign and let them learn on them, their own. yeah um, I'm much more laissez-faire
2: than my wife, who is much more tiger mom. So I don't have to worry <laughs> about it too much.
1: <laughs> it's kind of how it is in my house. I'm like, look, just let them be kids. I mean, they got to they gotta learn on their own. Like if well, no they pain, do, no ex- gain.
2: Yeah, except that we live in a world where there's no mulligans. If if kids really do something dumb and it's on video, it could yeah. affect their lives. It's just, so you know we grew up doing dumb stuff because we <laughs> could, um, and the stuff I got away with that's only remembered by select high school friends or fraternity brothers is well and good, but it's not on the internet.
1: Yeah, that's true. Now so, and now yeah. any anyone's carrying a camera at any any event anything, right? And you don't even know if they have one. Yeah, you know it may not be obvious either. So
2: so I, I wanted to make mistakes. I wanted to learn from her mistakes. Uh, And that'll be all kinds of different, you know, things, but we'll also try and, you know, protect her from the third rail, from the big stuff.
1: That's good. And now, so you mentioned, I think, half a billion in management, correct? Yeah,
2: a little north of that.
1: And what what type of clients, you know, Mm -hmm. are these people, you know, typically on age or income level?
2: Sure. Um, we, we actually have two distinct divisions of the company. We have a financial planning division and a wealth management division. And so they attract different kinds of clients. So wealth management division, most folks show up on our doorstep. They're 45 to 60. Um, they are working 60 hours a week and real busy humans. They've got parents getting older they're worried about. They've got kids to educate. They're busy people and they just want a concierge to just handle everything, Hel- help, help walk us through and handle everything. Um, And then the financial planning folks tend to be younger, though they aren't always. They tend to be younger. They tend to be upwardly mobile. Um, They may not have a high net worth yet, but they certainly want to get there and would like a co-pilot. And they don't necessarily want everything done for them. They want to know that things are being done with them and that they're learning along the way and that they're growing um, their financial acumen. So we, we begin with a process that's really it's, it's almost financial literacy. We make sure people really understand the decisions they're making and then we help guide them. But on the financial planning side, you know, we've got clients in their twenties and thirties who are, who are doing some really cool things and, and starting to grow some wealth at a young age in all different ways. And that could be business interest. It could be real estate. It could be equity markets. It could be businesses, um, any number of different.
1: Okay. Yeah. I mean, I definitely, you know, at least my own experience right now, you know, coming into your thirties, you actually start having some type of wealth, you're starting to have a family and you, you didn't get educated along the way by any means, by anybody on where do you go? How do you save money on taxes? You know, if you need insurance for the family, you know, how do you make that process smooth for them to come to you and kind of get started?
2: I, I think we make it relatively easy because we we work with folks on a flat fee basis. So there's no product, there's no sale, there's no... Um, there's no buyer's remorse because ultimately what we're doing is we're providing analysis, recommendations, and assistance with implementation on a predictable flat fee annual basis. For folks where we manage assets, we do it as non-transactionally as possible. The vast majority of our clients are on a fee basis and not a commission or or transaction basis whatsoever. Um, There are very few exceptions to that. Uh, And so what we try to do is we try to be navigators and co-pilots for all the big decisions. And the big decisions are the icebergs, you know, the the Titanic could have gotten where it was going a little slower and and arrived. Uh, Sometimes it's important to miss the big mistakes. And so we try to help with behavioral uh, finance and psychology and understanding why it is human for us to do exactly the wrong thing at exactly the wrong time instinctively, partly because we're not trained and partly because it's emotional. These are hard things. These are hard decisions, you know, and, and where do you go for advice? You asked a great question. If you're looking to buy your first home, if you're in your twenties or, or, or even early thirties, and you're looking to buy your first home, where do you go to get advice around that? If you go to a real estate agent, they're going to help you potentially find a property, but they're also going to make more money based on how much you spend. And that's not to suggest real estate agents aren't good people, but if they're helping you sell a house, your incentives are aligned. Because the more they get you for the house, Mm -hmm. the more they make, the more you make. But if they're helping you buy a house, the more they make, the more you've spent. And that's a conflict. Same thing with the mortgage industry. The mortgage industry, they're going to tell you how much you can qualify for. Not how much is in your best interest to potentially spend, but what can we qualify for? What's the high end of the, the noose that you can tie around your neck with this that you can qualify for? That doesn't make it a good financial decision, but they're going to be paid more based on how much you borrow. You know, and then you look at the insurance industry, the insurance industry, which is largely almost entirely commission driven. They're going to make more money based on how much you spend. So, you know, we try to be um, we try to be uh, objective and agnostic. Um, and we try to make sure that, that all of those things are working, but they're not in a vacuum. So how do, we, how do we combine what your CPA or tax preparer is working with, plus your estate planning attorney, plus your bankers and your real estate people and your mortgage people and your insurance agents and your HR departments? How do they all work together? Because so much of the time, the real big mistakes are made because of conflict they're made because you've built this beautiful estate plan and paid a lawyer a bunch of money and your insurance agent put the wrong beneficiary on something. Or you want to make a charitable gift and you're, and you're doing it in exactly the wrong way. Or you're trying to leave money to your kids and you're doing it in a way that they're going to screw it up. So a lot of this is strategy. It's not necessarily about which investment. It's not this real estate property is going to appreciate by more than this one, or this is the growth fund for you. You know, most of the time it's about how much risk should we be taking, market risk, inflation risk, uh, purchasing power risk, all the different kinds of things that play in there. um, And then determining what's our path to financial freedom, true financial independence, whether you want to be financially independent at 35 or, or by the time you're 75. If you if you build a track and you can run on it, it's going to be about behavior. How much do you need to put away? What do you need to earn? What is a reasonable way to get there? And then once you get there, how do we not mess it up? It's easier to stay wealthy than it is to become wealthy, Joe.
1: Oh, I you just agree. have to not
2: mess it up. Getting it? it's <laughs> kind of like it's kind of like it's easier to stay healthy than to get healthy. Uh, and so, so ultimately, it's about helping you get there, and then more importantly, making sure you stay there, and making sure your kids and grandkids have learned lessons and aren't just handed a blank check to mess things up.
1: So you know, you mentioned uh, kind of the mortgage side and coming out of the two thousands and being involved in real estate. You know one of the big things is obviously the mortgage side was giving everyone on mortgages but on the other side is you know people taking out mortgages really didn't know what they were getting and one of the things right. that should have came out of there was kind of educating the people more like you said and looking back now when you mentioned that i'm not sure if really there was ever too much progress there
2: oh absolutely right no. <laughs> there, there there was there was regulation yeah but but even when when education programs are regulated you know, if you're, if you're looking at a reverse mortgage, you're a senior and you're looking at reverse mortgages, before you're allowed to buy one, you have to go through an education session. They're nonsense. What you really need is you need a trusted person who doesn't sell this product to help you navigate and figure out if this is the right thing for you. Don't go to a salesman. Go to somebody who's going to help look at six different options and say, you know what, this one might work for you and this one might not. You know, the mortgage piece, there's so many reasons why 2008 and nine happened. And, and we could do three shows on just that. But the reality is the the banks took most of the blame, but they really weren't fully to blame. Um, I I tend to point the finger first at government, but you also have to point the finger at some of the lenders and you have to point the finger at some of the the, uh, consumers. I mean, think about it. You had people who couldn't get a Discover card who were buying homes with 100 or even 120% financing on a negative amortization basis so that they could afford the payment but they were actually getting further and further in debt. And the idea was, well, houses are always going to go up in value. So you'll just refinance it later once you have equity, except when they don't go up in value. And then there's a call on the mortgage and you can't make the payment because it's adjusting. And so why do I blame the government for this? Well, I blame the government because the government said at the time, and and if you had to point a finger at one human, it would be Barney Frank, (laughs) but there were others. And you'd have to say, this is, this is a, a committee, a part of Congress that said to banks, you must lend to everyone regardless of their ability. Find a way to get everyone into a house. It's a, it's a right, not a privilege. And so banks had to create ways to make the payment low enough that people could afford houses. Well, if all of a sudden you had this incredible surge in people able to buy houses because they could get financing, what do you think happened to housing prices? They bubbled. They went straight up because everybody wanted one. There were three, you know, three to 10 buyers for every seller at the time, which by the way is happening again.
1: Yeah. I was just going (laughs) to say
2: it's happening again, although not for the same reasons, but it's happening again. And we could talk about that too. But um, so you, you had banks that were forced to make loans to people who could not have otherwise qualified for them. So they had to modify the loans to make them make the payment affordable, but the consumers had no idea how that worked and they wouldn't today you know, looking at a good faith estimate, when you buy a house, you're signing a hundred pieces of paper. Nobody understands that you certainly aren't going to read it. And if you read it, you're not going to know what you read anyway. You have to have somebody you trust there. Well, that person better not also be the salesperson.
1: Now, also when it comes to this, you know, type of planning, what I may see, my opinion is that a lot of people are just, or a lot of investors or, you know, even, you know, everyday people are just not willing or want to face the reality of making that plan and kind of living for the future. How do you kind of get them off ground zero, we'll call it, and you know, take those first steps? <laughs> well, we,
2: well, we begin with the premise that to be young and broke is an inconvenience and to be old and broke is a tragedy. So let's start with <laughs> that. that. <laughs> it, it stinks to be 24 and not be able to afford what you want to do, it, but to be 74 and not afford what, what you need to live on is is a tragic outcome that's usually avoidable by some planning. So let's start with that theory. Um, you know, I don't know about you, but when I was 20 years old, 50 sounded old and being that I am turning 50 this year, I don't feel the way I thought 50 would feel. I still think I'm 25. I'm not. Um, but that said, you know, there's, there's a, there's a tendency for some people like any pendulum that swings too far. There are some people who spend nothing. They squirrel away every dollar. Their lives are mostly miserable. And they think once we reach this amount of money, we're going to be fine. And then they get there and they're too old to take the trip or their spouse dies or, uh, or they thought this would make them happy and it's just a bank account and it doesn't make them happy because they missed their lives. So you could save too much and you can put off too much for the future such that you're a miserable human. You could also spend every dollar you make or worse, a dollar ten or $1. twenty for every dollar you make, which some people do. And that'll eventually get in trouble too. You'll wind up in a, a hole of debt you can't get out of. So so you need to find an equilibrium point between enjoying your life today and finding the things that, that, that help you thrive and help you enjoy what you're doing, plus making sure that you have something so that that's perpetual.
1: Yeah. And so as you mentioned saving, uh, you know, and trying to find that extra cash or discretionary cash, you know, to put aside, Mm -hmm. you know, what, what are those opportunities today that are available for people to start looking at and where they could find that type of cash?
2: Well, it starts with the premise that you're, the only way to create cash flow is to have more income or lower expenses. That's just simple accounting. So if you don't have it in your, in, your, um, in your wherewithal, in your budget, so to speak, you either need a side hustle or a new job or to do something, a different career that's going to make you more money, or you need to find places where you can cut things that are, that are unnecessary so that you can save that amount of money. Um, and for people in their 20s, if you can live on 85 cents on the dollar, and put away 15. Um, and and rules of thumb are kind of dangerous because everybody's different. You know, somebody who's 25 and has triplets is going to be different than somebody 25 who's, who's still living on mom and dad's couch. Yep. Um, but in general, if, if you can live on less than 100% and ideally more like 85% of what you make, such that when you make more, you'll automatically have that 15% or maybe you'll even increase it to 16, 17, 18%. You can save real money without foregoing enjoyment of your life. But you have to, in order to find the cash, you either have to cut expenses or increase income. There's there's no other way to do it.
1: So for those people in their 20s that are, you know, want to set aside that 15%, obviously mm-hmm. they want to do it in a tax efficient manner mm-hmm. that minimizes taxes uh, until retirement. So what type of strategies are available there?
2: Well, first thing I'd say is that most people in that position don't have a tax problem. They have an income or a cash flow problem. <laughs> tax problems will come. Once you have a tax problem, you'll complain about taxes. And I, I despise taxes and will do everything I can legally to avoid them. But that said, it's better to have a tax problem than an income problem. So in, in fairness, it's better to make so much money that taxes irritate you than to not make enough money to pay your bills. So Correct. <laughs> um, there are, and, and for, for young people, most of the time, tax deductions for people who are early in their careers are not particularly fruitful or helpful because if you're in a modest tax bracket and you're putting money into an IRA or your 401k or whatever, and you're taking a tax deduction for those deposits, you're then going to grow the money for 40 or 50 years, and then you're going to pay taxes on what it's grown to become. That does not sound like a good plan to me. You're Not only are you likely to be in a higher bracket if you built real wealth, but the government's broke. So, Tax rates are not going down in this country or even in the states. The country can print money, which will cause other problems, inflation and the value of a dollar and all that. But states are broke and have to balance their budget. That means higher taxes. So there are are four places where most Americans at any age, just about, can put money where it will never be taxed again. And I think that's an incredibly powerful thing that folks miss. They miss this idea that paying a little bit now so that you never pay tax again is intensely powerful you can grow the money unfettered and not pay the piper along the way or on the back end. And if you do it right now, there's no such thing as a free lunch, Joe. You know, you're giving something up
1: most of the time. There's there's never 100% one side. There's always something to give up.
2: There's never a free lunch. Although I will tell you the closest thing to a free lunch is one of those strategies and that's the health savings account. The HSA is the single greatest tax tool ever invented and people are using it wrong or don't understand it. Um, This is not Uh, uh, An account that you should be using for your deductibles and your co-pays and your $50 swipes. This is something where you can take at any income level, you can take a tax deduction for deposits to the HSA, you can grow it not just in cash, you can invest it and grow the HSA for the rest of your life the rest of your lives, and you can then use the money for any healthcare expense down the road and make all of the withdrawals tax-free. It's the only account that allows you a tax deduction, tax deferral, and tax-free withdrawal. Now, the caveat is it's got to be for healthcare. Well, I would argue that when we're older, we're going to have health problems that we maybe don't have today. And I haven't seen healthcare costs going down anywhere, you know, lately. So if healthcare costs are going to go up and our health is going to change potentially, we're going to use this. If we're one of those fortunate people, who, uh, who plays tennis till we're 103 and drops dead without so much as a, a health <laughs> problem. If we're one of those folks, then it's treated like an IRA. You can use it just like an IRA and make it taxable income, but you can use it for anything you want. Here's the beauty though. There's no limit to how long you wait to file claims. So Joe, if you were funding this account right now, and the limits are based on whether it's an individual plan or a family plan, and they aren't super high limits, but you could do it. You take a tax deduction for that and you're, let's say you, you, you grow this for the next 20 years and you've put away $6,000 a year, $7,000 a year for that period of time. And you've grown this thing in an S&P fund or whatever you're growing it in. And it grows to two, three, four, $500,000 over time. You can then file 20 years worth of medical claims, keep your receipts, and you can file it later and get a check tax-free from your account for stuff that happened 18 years ago. It's unbelievable.
1: So when you, what are considered expenses under this, you know, healthcare could premiums, be, what are they? It's,
2: it's, it's um, visits to doctors, it's prescriptions, it's um, long-term care insurance. If you choose to use it that way, um, it's any of the medical expenses that would normally be deductible under schedule A that has largely gone away because the threshold's so high, yep. nobody can use it unless they're either destitute or deathly ill.
1: And, and now that the insurance premiums, at least uh, here on, you know, in North Carolina, is that there are a lot greater deductibles or expenses that we got to pay out of pocket during the year. So we're not getting that full deduction of the policy. I'm like, listen, I just want to pay one price for a freaking insurance premium. I don't want nothing else. I just want one price and I want to be able to deduct it at the end of the year through the business, whatever it is, right?
2: Yeah. That's the way I used to feel too, but but it's actually, it's actually not the best way to do it. The better thing is to have a lower cost for the insurance and to then have have it be there for a catastrophe. If you're airlifted to shock trauma, you're going to be glad you have an unlimited plan of some kind. But for the normal stuff, for the normal visits, for the sprained ankle or the podiatry visit or whatever it is, just pay for it out of pocket. If you have the wherewithal to do it and fund, instead of funding premiums for the insurance company, fund an HSA for you you're much better off. You will grow this money and you can, you can grow it in a way that it's never taxed again. And you got a deduction on the front end. So I used to feel just like you just, I don't care what the premium is. Tell me what it is. And then I don't want to pay anything ever for any doctor. Just tell me what it costs. That used to be a great thing. I would tell you, it is no longer the best way to do this in a wealth building. It's nice to have predictable expenses, Yep. but if you're a healthy guy, you lose on that deal. Because you're not building an account, you're not building wealth. You're paying a high premium whether you use it or not. It's a great deal if you're really sick, but if you're a healthy human, you're not going to hit those every year. So why pay so much in premium for something that you're essentially subsidizing sick people? Instead, build your own account.
1: So for all of our investors that are listening, um, what is a lot of them like to self-direct their type of accounts? You know, how does that work with the HSA?
2: HSA, you you can choose your underlying investments, but they're going to be limited based on on where you are. So, you know, you're you're going to pick a commercial bank. You're going to put a, a some money into the account. You're going to hold in one of the funds they allow. Usually, um, this, but it's such a small account. This isn't yeah. where you're going to. This isn't where you're going to have necessarily huge numbers. This is where you're going to do some basic tax planning and grow some money that's not taxed again. But you're not going to use this to, you know, you're not going to buy a piece of property in a in a in an HSA account. You know, that, that that that's just these numbers aren't big enough. They're not grand enough where that makes sense to me.
1: All right. Well, then let's that's good. I think we've covered that. And so let's roll into the next tax strategy that you have available that, and what you think is next best.
2: Yeah, no, the, the, the next is, uh, I would say, probably, well, the other the other three are um, they're all great, but they're not as great as the HSA because you don't get a tax deduction on the way in generally. So one of them is the Roth IRA or the Roth 401k, which by now I think your listeners probably really know well. In fact, if your <laughs> listeners are mostly, I mean, <laughs> I'm, I know I've seen I've seen the shows you've done, I listen to stuff. You guys love the Roth IRAs and I don't blame you. It's a great tool. What a lot of people don't realize is that, um, you know, you can't contribute to a Roth IRA if your income is too high, but you can do IRA conversions at any income level. So if you don't have a traditional IRA currently, you can fund a traditional IRA with a non-deductible contribution at any income level, and you can convert it to the Roth at any income level. It's called a back to a Roth IRA. It has been blessed by the IRS. This is not complicated tax planning, but it's important. What you're doing is you're creating basis in your, in your IRA so that when it converts to the Roth, it's not taxable again. Essentially, it's the same as funding a Roth IRA, but there's no income limit on it. And I think a lot of people miss that opportunity. And what it means is you have to have your CPA or tax preparer, put a form 8606 in with your W-2s. I'm sorry, in with your 1040s. The form 8606 is what declares the basis because you're going to get a 1099R from the investment company for the conversion. And if you don't declare the basis on that form, you're going to pay taxes on the same dollars twice. And that is the single worst tax move I can contemplate. So done right, it's brilliant. Done wrong, it's really horrible. So you just have to make sure your CPA is on board.
1: So what are maybe some of the best things that you've seen or uh, maybe the accounts that have done the best over the years when it comes to an mm-hmm. IRA or a self-directed IRA and what they invested in and kind of, you know, some nuggets for the listeners?
2: You know, self-directed IRAs are are something I I don't get involved with uh, directly most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, for For all the reasons based on my licensure and the things that I do, I I don't get involved in that. I have self-directed IRAs myself for things like private equity and venture capital and those kinds of things, which I I think that's a great way to do it, but that's for my investments. That's not necessarily something that we're rolling out to the general public. There's lots of reasons why that's difficult to do. But for listeners who want to do their own self-directed IRAs or Roth IRAs, one, there are ways to use real estate as an investment in those. And as long as you never set foot in that property and it's purely an investment play, there are ways to, to make that work for you. It is, the rules are incredibly strict. And if you mess it up, you will wind up with a very, very ugly tax problem where the entire account becomes taxable in the year you mess it up. So you need good advice, but if you've done it properly, it's a way to, to buy and sell and flip or, or continue to grow real estate in a way that's tax deferred. So that's a good thing. It's also, I think, a great spot for things like private equity or, or, or angel investing. I know you've talked about some of that on your shows and, and that is a great way to do it because it, it does not require um, it, it requires a different custodian. It requires a, a custodian that'll allow for self-direction.
1: And definitely, it's definitely a pac- passive activity and you really don't run the risk of uh, UDFI or UBIT, depending on how you're looking at it, uh, w- which you may could run into with a real estate transaction.
2: That's right. You, 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 you know, this isn't, people think that they, they can buy a vacation home that way. <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> don't ever set foot in that property, even to clean the bathroom. Do not go there. It is purely passive or it's a big problem.
1: So, we went over the HSA, the Roth IRA. What is your next?
2: Uh, the next one's the 529 plan. Okay. So, the college savings plans, um, which, of course, the first thing people would say is, well, if I don't have children, should I use this? And the answer is probably not, uh, in fairness, unless you're going to go get that PhD you've been thinking about. So, Yeah, but for for people who do have children or grandchildren who are establishing um, sort of a family tree, um, the 529s are nice because they're ways to put after-tax dollars away that are never taxed again, where there's no limitation to when these funds have to be used. They can be held, you can change beneficiaries, it's still in your name and it's still your account when you are doing this for your kids or grandkids or or for a total stranger. If you were so inclined, they're just the beneficiary of the account. They don't own it. It's your money, but it's outside your estate. So if you live in a high tax state, if you're in New York, California, or heck even here in Maryland, if you're, if you're in a position, Oh, and let's not forget New Jersey. How could I forget New (laughs) Jersey? But if you're living in a high tax area, um, you know, your estate taxation could be really ugly. And so this is a way to put some money um, in a very favorable way. So it's not taxed when you die. Um, at the same time, the money can grow tax-free. It's pulled out tax-free as long as it's used for school. And that's that's K-12 to within limitations. It's college in the US and Canada. Um, there's a whole lot of different things that qualify for that. And there's websites, savingsforcollege.com and other websites you can look at for what qualified expenses are. But the, the reality is you could pass this down multiple generations and never pay taxes on it. It's very, very cool. And um, you might even get a tax deduction in your home state. Some states allow you to use any plan and deduct it at the state level. Some will only allow you to use their plan. So you need to know where, based on where you live, you need to know what the rules are. You can also do a five-year gift averaging on this. So we've got grandparents who are putting away five times the gift limit, which is $15,000 a year as the annual gift exclusion. So grandma can do $75,000 per, grand, per grandkid. Grandpa can do $75,000 per grandkid. Next thing you know, you've got $150,000 in account for each grandchild that still belongs to grandma and grandpa. It's still their money if they have to get to it. But when they die, it goes to their kids, for their grandkids, and all of it is tax-free.
1: So I'm sure someone's like, well, what if we never use it? <laughs> <laughs> Why well, well, the kids never some- go to school?
2: Well, someone somewhere is going to use it. And, yeah. and if you need the money, what will happen is – you will pay ordinary income tax plus 10% penalty on the gain. So you pay nothing, there's no penalty or, or tax on your principal. There's only a tax on the gains. So I would argue if you're in the what's about to be again, the 39.6% tax bracket, I think we're gonna see that again, plus the Medicare surcharge. So you're getting to 43 and a half percent here. If you're in a 43% tax bracket because you're making gobs of money right now and you put money in these plans and then 30 years from now, your kids and grandkids never used it, you might find yourself in a 10% or 15% ordinary income tax bracket. And even with the penalty, you probably still did pretty well. I'm not suggesting you do that. That is not advice. That is a safety net.
1: Safety net. People always just want to know what, what if, what if all these the, scenarios in the future? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the worst,
2: the, well, I mean, what if, what if college becomes free? What yeah, if student the loans yep. evaporate and it's all free? Um, th- that's a real consideration. If If school goes completely virtual and somehow it's free, Um, which nothing's free, Joe. If it's free to one person, somebody else is paying for it. Um, But if if there's suddenly no need for these, the worst case scenario is usually not terrible. It's not great. It's not the first choice, but the worst case scenario is usually not terrible.
1: All right. So we went over HSA, Roth IRA, right? 529. And I believe you have one more for us.
2: I do. And- This one's going to going to cause your your listeners or viewers to sort of cock one eyebrow up and be like, huh? Um, But it's whole life insurance. And so before people start throwing stuff at me, you know, like rotten vegetables in medieval times or something, um, whole life insurance is an unbelievably powerful tool for wealth building and for tax planning if it's used properly. Um, And what, what I think a lot of people do is they go to their insurance agent or provider or whatever, and they're often sold things that don't make sense that aren't this type of vehicle. And, um, you know, I I wrote a book, my third book recently called Don't Retire, Graduate, um, which was published in the fall. And there's an entire chapter on how to do this and how to do it properly. Um, and I can also uh, refer your listeners to a, an ebook that's out yep. o- online that's free that people can read more about this. But, um, you know, the fact is that a whole life insurance is a way to grow perpetual multigenerational wealth and to become your own bank. It's a way to build collateral. It's a way to utilize money while you're living. You don't have to die to collect and you don't have to die to win. And people misunderstand that. And term insurance is rent. That's not to suggest there aren't reasons to own some. Sometimes you need to rent. You know, if you're a young mom or dad and, and, and in, the, in your absence, your kids would be in deep trouble, then yes, have some term insurance in case you don't wake up tomorrow morning. Term insurance, though, is, is not going to build you wealth. It's just going to protect it in the worst scenario. So I'm, I'm not saying you shouldn't have it. I have some term insurance for that purpose, and it's for a limited period of time, and it's inexpensive but I'm fully expecting to outlive it and to collect nothing. And with term insurance, that's usually what happens. Less than 2% of life insurance claims are term claims. That's because people buy it. It's rent. They outlive it. It goes away. And all the money that you spent on premiums all those years goes to build fountains in the lobby of the insurance company.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, me personally, I do have some term. Uh, I, I, on two, two reasons why I have it. One, because I have family and kids now. So I have it for the duration while the kids are living in the household. Absolutely. So that's my, and then the other part is just I'd like to call it my uh, my own insurance policy. That I have a less likelihood of dying when I have some insurance. Oh. <laughs> I know that sounds a little crazy everything seems to work in opposite effects in life so this, I'm like if I buy insurance I have a less likelihood of dying because they don't
2: want work So you consider life insurance kind of like carrying an umbrella on a sunny day because it'll be less likely to rain <laughs> Yes All right well that's that's interesting psychology we, we'll have to do that from a from a couch in a that's a different discussion. Um, you know term insurance is fine temporarily that's what it's for. It is not a wealth building tool. It is a safety net. and It is purely a safety net. Um, and there's lots of kinds of life insurance and a lot of them are garbage. A lot of them are absolutely garbage. But what whole life does that the others generally don't, and we can do a whole show on that if you wanted to, but what, what it does is it creates contractual cash values that you can utilize as collateral or in various ways during your lifetime. In addition to having a death benefit, you can't outlive. More importantly, structured properly, it's something that you pay premiums for temporarily, but own forever. So think of it like the difference between renting and buying a home. You rent a home. Let's say you were renting an apartment, and it's just like term insurance. You're renting it for 15 years or 20 years or 30 years. And they say, you can live here for this rent payment. We will never raise your rent. But when the rent is over, you have to leave. You're going to leave with no equity. You might not even be able to take your furniture, but you have to go. For some people, that's a great deal temporarily. But if you outlive it, you're
1: homeless.
2: (laughs) On the other hand, a mortgage, if you do it right and you do a 10 or a 15 or even a 30 year mortgage, there will come a day if you're still in that property where you were potentially you own it outright. There is no mortgage, but you still get to live in the house. And oh, by the way, it's created equity and it's created wealth for you whole life insurance is the equivalent of buying a home instead of renting an apartment and used properly. It's an incredible tool used improperly. It looks and feels
1: expensive. So from an investor standpoint, you know, give us, you know, run us through the easy scenario of, you know, whole life example, like policy amount, maybe how they would use the cash value and so forth to get a visual of how it would work.
2: Sure. I I will tell you my personal story. And then for more um, at lowtaxbook.com, there's a, a resource for this, but my personal story is, um, when I was a teenager, my parents had the foresight to get whole life insurance on my life. They did not do this in any creepy way because they were hoping they'd collect a death benefit on their own child. That's a horrible idea. And it's one that if someone said that to me, I would ask them to leave my office and not politely. Um, but nonetheless, they, they did that for me when I was 14 years old. And then when I was an adult, um, they gifted it to me. Because it's an exclusion. It's called transfer for value rule. It's an exclusion where they own it for as long as they want to. It's never my property unless they gift it to me. And if they gift it to me, it's not subject to the gift tax exclusions because I'm the insured. So they gifted it to me and I used the cash value in life insurance as the down payment for my first home. So when I I became a homeowner and I stopped paying rent and I started buying a home, I used it for the down payment so that I didn't have to use other resources. So I still had enough cash on hand in case there was an emergency. Um, and I subsequently paid that back. I used the insurance company as my own bank to get better, the better terms on the mortgage. And I, I subsequently sold that home and have bought other homes and made significant money on that piece of real estate because I, I sold it in 2007. So, you know, that's a W. Mm-hmm. Of course, I also bought in 2007. I'm not going to talk about <laughs> that one. Um,
1: only talk about wins in life, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. Let's only talk about the wins. Um, but so that little bit of life insurance that was on my life when I was 14 years old bought me a home that, that created a multiple of wealth. But then more importantly, I started a company in 2003. I was 31 years old and I started a company and no bank would lend to me to start a company. It just wasn't going to happen. Um, they want two years of tax returns and PNLs. And they want all this. Now banks are tripping over themselves right now to lend to me. But at the time when it was just a concept and I had a pro forma and I was ready to go, they all laughed me out of their offers. So I used the life insurance to borrow enough money to start the company, to get an office, to furnish it, to um, to hire my first employee. And since that time, it's long since paid off. And I've grown this company into, into 21 people and 5 million in revenues. And I mean, All of that stems from having the life insurance because no one would lend me money for anything else. Now, you can borrow money against your homes to do that. If you don't mind making your house collateral for the business, you can do it if you have equity in it. If I had done that, though, when I sold the property in 2007, I would not have had enough seed capital for the next home because it would have all been tied up in the business. Make sense? So ultimately, it became a funding vehicle. So now, today, fast forward... Um, I own this life insurance on myself, but I also on my wife, on my daughter. My daughter, who's 11, hers is fully paid for for the rest of her life. I did what was essentially a 10-year mortgage for her at birth, and it's done, and it'll grow forever, and I own it. So if she's rotten as a teenager, I get to keep it. Um, But at some point, if she gets married or has kids or wants to buy a home or wants to start all those things, I can give it to her no matter what it's worth. And it becomes her property and there's no cost to her. It's just an asset and it'll grow tax-free forever. As long as it's never surrendered, you can utilize it. You just can't cancel it because if you cancel it, even if you pay nothing into it, if you cancel it, it creates a taxable event potentially.
1: So what I'm getting from here is that starting one of these whole life policies, while are your, your kids are young and allow it allows it to accumulate value Mm -hmm. uh, to the point at which they become, I guess we'll call it a responsible age. Mm -hmm. Then you pass that policy control over Mm -hmm. to them to be able to utilize for themselves.
2: Correct. Or, or to not only utilize for themselves, but ultimately to leave something behind for your grandchildren. And it costs you nothing extra. It's already done. And to give you a sense, you know, you can do this for kids for two or $3,000 a year. You're not talking about a huge number. But it'll be a significant amount of insurance because the insurance company looks at it and goes, this death benefit is not going to get paid for 70 years, 80 years. So it's very inexpensive, but it still grows. And typically these contracts, if you do it right, they're worth more in cash after 10 years than you've put into them. And then they grow for the rest of your life with no premiums. And it's not that this is based on dividends or based on interest rates or based on markets. It's contractual. There's no further premiums if you do it right. So it creates incredible wealth that rolls down generations. Now, we have, we have married couples, lots of them who do this on each other, and they, they both own this. And the reason is that if you're planning on either a pension income, which, you know, you're, you're a millennial, sir. Uh, and as a Gen Xer, even we don't have uh, pensions most of the time. But if you work for government or military or whatever, you have a pension, great. Um, one of the challenges with a pension is, that you have to decide the survivorship benefits. Is it just you, or are you leaving money behind potentially for your spouse? If you're doing that, you're taking a reduced pension. So if you own enough life insurance on your life, you can keep the higher pension income instead of reducing it because your spouse won't get the pension, but she'll get the death benefit tax-free instead of the pension that's taxable income. So that's an option. Same thing with social security. You know, if you and you're, you're, you're a married guy, right? if you and your wife both have social security and let's say for for giggles, you both collect $4,000 a month, 30 years from now from social security. I know you're smirking because it's going to be there. Yeah. And no, I know, but let's assume it's there. Let's assume it's there.
1: And we get, if not, extra. they're going to print it for me, damn it.
2: <laughs> By then we'll have printing presses in our basement. We'll do it ourselves. So let's assume it's there. You have a benefit of $4,000 a month. And let's say your spouse, um, is a non-working spouse. And you got to be careful how you say that. My wife doesn't have a job outside of the house, but she works damn hard in the house. So there's that. <laughs> but nonetheless, let's assume that's the case. And let's assume that as a result, her benefit is half your benefit. So it's 2000 a month. While you're both alive and well, you collect $6,000 a month. When either of you dies, you'll keep the larger of the two. So whether it's her or you, you'll keep the $4,000, you will lose $2,000 a month. So there is absolutely positively a pay cut coming at widowhood. If you have life insurance, if you have whole life insurance, two things can happen. Let's say you drop dead and she lives on. You're going to lose a social security payment or or some of the pension payment or whatever, but she collects your death benefit. And then she has a permission slip to use and enjoy her own cash value because she doesn't have to leave it to you. You're gone. So you can create enough capital, all of which is tax-free to not take a pay cut and to continue the same financial freedoms that you had before. It's intensely powerful used properly. And it all of these strategies, quite frankly, in a vacuum, you wouldn't put everything in any one of these. You know, you, you have to have some property that's getting tax deductions if you need it. You have to have some tax deferral. You have to have some, some resources, but it's nice to have some money that won't be taxable. That Roth IRA, when you make a withdrawal, it's not taxable. It doesn't affect your Medicare premiums. It doesn't affect your tax rate. What a glorious thing.
1: Same that thing's true with all of these. I know one of the questions sometimes people get is, uh, you know, when it comes to these life insurance carriers, you know, what happens if they go out of business, right? Or, you know, which one do I go with kind of, you know, what is your take on that?
2: Well, my take, first of all, is um, the biggest risk on that would really be to term insurance um, because the term insurance has, has reserves, but they're, they're the reserves of the insurance company that, that, that none of it is in any kind of banking vehicle or, or sitting there. Um, So term insurance is sort of more of a a risk. Um, The second thing I would say is that when carriers go out of business, and it does happen, typically their assets are sold off to other carriers. So other carriers would buy pieces of that book of business. And so you might get a different logo on your statement, but otherwise it has no impact on you under most circumstances. There are, uh, the, the state insurance commissioners have, have various uh, uh, you know, safeguards in place to make sure that insurance companies are banked properly and reserved properly and so forth, but companies go out of business. That's true of every industry. Um, and so when you're doing whole life, to me, it is important to use a mutual insurance company, not a stock company. So here's what the difference is. With a mutual company, and there are a couple of really good ones, strong companies, with a mutual company, The owners of the company are the policyholders. There are no other stockholders. So when there's a profit in the company, it goes to the policyholders. It doesn't go to somebody on Wall Street. In a stock company, when the stock does well, or when the company does well, first thing they're gonna do is give dividends to the stockholders so they can bump up their stock price. Well, that doesn't help the policyholders at all. In fact, you're making other people money. So if I'm gonna do whole life and I'm gonna have cash that I'm relying on, I want to make sure I also own the company and that's how a mutual company works. And there, there are, uh, you know, it used to be, I I would say there were, there were four that were really reputable and today there are three, but there are three really good carriers out there. um, And if you use one of them, um, they are mutual companies. I believe they're all triple A rated and strong rated um, with, with S and P and Fitch and so forth. And you own the company by virtue of your policy.
1: Is that Penn, Pen Mutual, Mass Mutual, or those? Uh,
2: mass, Mass Mutual is one that I certainly um, think qualifies there. Northwestern Mutual and Guardian. And there, there are others, there are others, but those are the three who I think are the, the um, sort of the gorillas in the space.
1: So basically along the journey, people can, obviously we gave them quite a few options here today from the IRA accounts, mm-hmm. whole life insurance, education, uh, health. I mean, we're covering all the aspects. They could, you know, take care of things in life. Uh, you know, along the journey and planning as they move closer to retirement. You know, what are some things to start thinking about?
2: What you have to think about is twofold. One is qualitative, and one is quantitative. Qualitatively, it might even be more important than the than the math problem. And that is, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, we haven't been asked that since we were seven, and we all wanted to be astronauts. But at, at some point asking a grown adult what they want to be when they grow up gets you a blank stare because they haven't, they're not accustomed to that. Um, but your retirement could be a third of your life and half of your adult life. And if that's true, you better have something to do, whether it's for money or not, you better not be watching daytime TV and doing crossword puzzles or you will not thrive. There's only so many golf courses. There's only so many, I mean, yes, you can enjoy your grandkids, but they grow up too. And suddenly grandma's less interesting. <laughs> Um, you have to have a purpose, a mission, a reason to get out of bed. Maybe it's volunteering. Maybe it's family. Maybe it's, um, maybe it's a side hustle or consulting. Maybe it's having a job just because it keeps you, uh, chatting with people. The last thing you want is for your LinkedIn page to say retired.
1: I <laughs> I'm hoping we just re- change the word this decade. Like let's, let's get a new definition in the, uh, you know, Wikipedia, what actually retirement is these days. Cause I feel like that definitely needs change.
2: Well, and I'll, I'll give you one, because to retire, that word retire, first of all, it has tire in it. To be retired yeah. is to be tired. <laughs> yeah. um, secondly, in, in the UK, the word retire means to go to sleep. I'm going to retire for the evening. Well, I don't want to take a dirt nap just because I don't have a job. Um, so I, I think to me, retirement is the absence of needing to work, not the absence of working. If you're financially independent, such that you're working for fun, it's not work. It's what you like to do. That's an activity that happens to pay some bills. So so that's the qualitative piece is making sure you have something to go towards. You know, your retirement should be treated like a graduation, like something to celebrate, but not the end of anything. It's the beginning of the next stage of your life. And it takes a couple of years to plan for that. You don't just wake up one day and say, I think I'll stop working. And then what are you going to do? I don't know, I'll travel. For 30 years, like, what are you going to do? Then on the quantifiable side, you have to change your mindset almost completely about the way you invest, because you have, to, you have to stop necessarily thinking about accumulation and start thinking about income. Where's the income going to come from? How much will it be? How do I make sure I don't outlive it? Um, and, and what are the tax implications of that income? We've all spent 50 years growing a nest egg, right? You, you, you get to a certain age and you know what it means to put away money every paycheck or every month. We've all been doing it. Our entire adult lives, maybe even as teenagers, we we know what to do. But then it comes time to take withdrawals and we don't know what to do because we've never done it before. And if you've never done it before, what are the ways in which you're going to handle that? You're either going to guess or screw it up (laughs) or you're going to hire somebody to help you. And I would tell you, if you're going to have a financial advisor help you with that process or a tax advisor or a combination, it's better to start sooner because you want to position assets so that they'll create income for you in advance. In the same way you don't wanna wake up on Tuesday and go, well, Monday was my last day of work, what am I gonna do? You don't wanna start the first of a month and say, well, this month I'm gonna start taking withdrawals. We'll figure out where to take them later. Have a plan, understand that some of this money is for the very long-term and you can keep it invested any which way you want, but some of it has to pay some bills or has to, to, to handle your lifestyle for the next year or two or five or 10. Segregate your assets in such a way that you know what your, where your money's coming from to live on and how that'll be treated and how it'll be taxed and what you're going to do with it. And then the rest of it can grow the way you're used to, like you don't have to treat every account the same. It's not like you're suddenly going to wake up one morning and flip a switch and now you're going to be conservative. Like you can be aggressive with some of your money, moderate with some of your money and conservative with some of your money based on when you're going to need it. You're going to need it next Wednesday, or you are going to need it in 15 years?
1: I know there's a lot of different rules out there, 4%, whatever it may be. And, you know, we're in a very low interest rate environment. Uh, I mean, how do you see this impacting people's tax planning as we move forward? And especially maybe those that are looking to retire or, you know, get that passive income. (laughs) Well, well, you
2: you know, first, I think it's important to remember that we are going to live longer than we expect and life's going to be more expensive than we dream. And, And the reason I say that is that we have bills that we pay now every month that are part of our normal life that didn't exist 10 years ago, whether it's Netflix or Verizon or whatever, there are bills we pay now every month that become part of what we do. And it's part of our budget that didn't exist. That's going to be true 10 years from now. There'll be stuff that we pay for. It might be a charging station for our car. I don't know, but there'll be things we pay for that we do not currently have to pay for. So life's going to get more expensive. We haven't had inflation in this country in a really long time, and the odds of that coming at some point in the next decade, I believe, are getting higher. Um, not necessarily runaway rampant inflation, but we're going to see some. Um, interest rates are, are not good. We've had a bull market for 30-plus years in bonds. That is over. It's over. Cash is paying nothing. Money's cheap, so it's flowing like crazy. That won't be forever forever. And so when you, when you start to look at what the next 10 years are going to look like or, or even more, I think it's fair to say certain things are true. Interest rates will be higher. They can't go much lower. Tax rates will be higher. They're currently as low as they've been in modern history. And there is absolutely no mathematical way they're going to stay that way or political way they're going to stay that way. They're going to go up. So your, your taxes are going to be higher. The cost of borrowing is going to get higher. So what can you do now? Well, it's a good time to delever it's a good time to either not have debt or to have all of the debt fixed so you don't have to worry about it. When interest rates rise, you're not gonna get pummeled. Um, It's a good time to start thinking about um, the impact of a higher tax regime in 10 years, no matter what your income might look like today, unless you're planning to be an abundant failure, And you're planning that you're living on every dollar now and you're getting pummeled from taxes. But don't worry, I'll be good and broke in 10 years, so I won't pay any taxes. And if that's your plan, (laughs) um, we we need an intervention. But assuming that's not your plan and you're planning for abundance and you're planning to have some wealth and, and you have to expect that you're going to pay higher taxes. So you must diversify. Diversified does not just mean which mutual fund or stock or even real estate property to own. It means understand the difference between how money will be treated from a tax perspective when it's time to take income. Some will be ordinary income. Some will be capital gains. Now, capital gains tax has been incredibly low lately. It's not going to stay here. Legislation is already being discussed. The political landscape has changed. There will be higher capital gains taxes, especially for people of means. And if we get a heads up about that, we'll be able to do something about it. But if it just happens and it's retroactive to the 1st of January and we're just, we're, there's going to be gridlock. You're not going to be able to sell anything without losing 40% of it potentially. That's going to hurt markets. It's going to hurt lots of things.
1: I agree. And I think what our takeaway from this is plan properly, start at a young age, allocate to retirement, and utilize these tax efficient buckets, you know, through the HSA, 529, IRAs, and the whole life. And, you know, probably look at your income and expenses on a monthly basis and know what is going on and then plan for your retirement. And if probably executed with the right team, you're going to do well in life. At least financially.
2: (laughs) I don't know if you're going to thrive in other ways. You might still have to hit the treadmill occasionally. But but yes, financially, financially paying yourself first and understanding that you need to live on less than 100% and calculating what that is. If you want to be financially independent at fifty-seven, what do you have to do to get there? What do you have to save? Which means, what do you have to live on? You have to base your budget on less than you make, and nobody likes to budget. I had a, I had a guest on my show, um, no. on the Don't Retire Graduate show, that that wrote a book called Budgeting Doesn't Have to Suck, and we had an argument because I think it does suck. Um, although actually, his his book's terrific. He was a good guy, but nobody wants to think about a budget. Nobody wants to be told thou shalt not. Nobody wants to be told you can't go out to eat or you can't have that latte if it makes you happy. <laughs> so what I don't, I don't want to tell clients what they can't do. I want to be able to tell clients you put away 15% or 18% or whatever the math is. And what you do with the rest of it is anything you want. You know, if you want to go to, uh, uh, to the Capitol grill uh, uh, and spend $500 on dinner, just don't do it every Wednesday. You know, if, if, if that's important to you, if dining's important or travel's important or, um, or grandkids are important or whatever it is, it's not that you can't afford something you want to do. It's that you can't afford everything.
1: I agree. Proper planning allows you to get what you want in life, but, uh, let's leave it off there and, you know, go to our final question as what is, what is the biggest thing you have implemented in your life that has helped increase your net worth?
2: Quite frankly, we've already talked about it. Uh, the, <laughs> That's the, the, the whole life policy made me money on the on on my homes. It made me money on the business. And one of the other things that I think has enhanced my net worth, so that I don't sound redundant, is in my business, I started selling shares of this closely held company in my thirties. So, um, so I would have partners. I have four. There are four of us now. And um, while some people would say, "Why would you sell something that wasn't ripe on the vine yet?" What I recognized was having partners would create not only amplified opportunity to grow the company, but also amplified opportunity to enjoy my life. You know, I take most of the summer off. That's something you can't do when it's a one-man show. So I I was able to create life balance and and to enjoy my family and all those kinds of things without taking a pay cut. All it meant was I owned a little less stock in the company, but I had other people whose skin was in the game. And if you're an executive at, at some public company and all of your money is in their stock, Any reasonable advisor is going to say, you've got to diversify. You shouldn't hold all that stock. Well, why is that different in a private company? Why should I own 60 or 70 or 80% of my net worth in one stock? Which, by the way, meant I was over allocated to financial services and micro cap,
1: because that would be me.
2: (laughs) So you wouldn't do that if you worked at IBM or Under Armour. Why would you do that working at BFG Financial Advisors? So I started selling shares. Um, I, I still own a, a significant share of the company and we've grown exponentially and, and it's been a really good move for me to have partners at, because now we're all working together and we're growing something that's bigger than it could have been if it was just me. So I, I would say as, as well as the whole life, uh, as much as the whole life helped me, understanding that I didn't have to be a 100% owner of my own enterprise and that it was valuable to bring in people who were different than I was and had different skills and talents than I was and to allow them to buy into the company, even when the company's share price was a lot lower then than it is now, probably was was one of the great money makers for me anyway, even though and, I, I sold some of it lower.
1: And to put it in perspective, Bezos owns a small percentage and. In- in the grand scheme of Amazon, yet he's one of the richest guys, right? Not, not one of. I think, gonna, me. <laughs> I think he's going to be
2: a trillionaire. I saw recently he's going to be the the world's first trillionaire. He's a he's a country.
1: So yeah, I mean, it definitely when it comes to partnerships and whole life, I believe that is definitely a winning formula. Uh, you know, people want you know, listeners, I want to get a hold of you or download yeah. the book. What is the best yeah. way for them to do that?
2: Um, you can find all our resources at brotmanmedia.com. So that's the podcast. It's the, the ebooks and white papers. If you want to know more about financial planning, um, we have a site at financialplanningforall.com. Uh, and you can also look us up at bfgfa.com, which is BFG Financial Advisors.
1: Well, I appreciate Eric coming out today.
2: Oh, it's been fun. Good to get to know you. And I, I wish you continued success.
1: I appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes and leave a rating and a review. See you on our next episode. Thanks for listening to The Joe Robert Show. Take these tips and insights that you can use to help grow your own personal wealth and share them with a friend that could also benefit. Don't miss a single episode or updates. Subscribe to our email list at joerobert.com. And as always, keep pushing yourself towards a more impactful life. The
1: Joe Robert Show. The Joe Robert
0: Show. Show, robber, show.